Well, good morning, church. It's um, so good to see you all, especially wonderful to see uh, friends of those, friends and family of those who are getting baptized and receive as members, especially those who come from other churches. It's so good to see all of you here. Let's uh, come to God in prayer as we hear his voice in the word. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. And we ask, dear Lord, that today you will clarify truths in our minds and make these beautiful for our hearts and good for our lives. So lead us and guide us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to week three of our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We're actually uh, jumping to chapter four instead of spending time in chapter three because we had Vision Sunday. And so we're making some adjustments so that we can finish the Gospel of Mark before the end of the year. I'd love to encourage you to read uh, Mark chapter three this coming week anyway to sort of get a sense of where we're at. Uh, but chapter four, verses one to 20 will be our focus for today. Uh, and Mark chapter four begins with a parable. Uh, this is one of many parables that we'll encounter in the Gospel of Mark. And so it's worthwhile for us to just pause and ask the question, what is a parable? If I were to ask you, what's a parable, what would you say? Uh, a parable, um, the word parable comes up in verse 2. If you look at your Bibles, it says, Then he, Jesus, taught them many things by parables. It also comes up in verses 10 and 11, right? So parables, that's where we're at. Now, some people say that a parable is like a metaphor or an illustration or a simile. Uh, in other words, they suggest that it is a figure of speech where a word or a phrase is applied symbolically rather than literally. Right? So, for example, when we say that Tom, our service leader, is a beast, uh, we're not literally saying he's an animal, right? Um, he, it's a metaphor to say that he's huge, he's strong, he's powerful. It's not literal, it's symbolic. And some say that's what parables are. And in many ways, this makes sense, right? Uh, verses 1 to 2 says that Jesus is teaching by way of parables. And then look at verse 3. Verse 3 speaks of a farmer, it speaks of seed, and it speaks of soil. Clearly, the sower, seed, and soil are metaphors or illustrations of some deeper spiritual meaning. So it's not so much about the seed or the soil, it's about something else. That's why it's a parable. And perhaps it's as plain, as simple as that. But then verses 10 to 12, look at verses 10 to 12 for me. It complicates things a little bit because it says that there's something secretive. There's something mysterious about parables. Verse 11 says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now, on top of that, it's, it also says that part of the purpose of parables is so that those may see but never perceive, they may hear but never understand. In other words, parables are designed to reveal and conceal some things. Okay. Well, putting this all together, we can see that a parable is an illustrative way of teaching to clarify truths for those in the kingdom and conceal truths for those outside of the kingdom. There are blanks in your outlines. You can fill that in. I'll say that again, right? A parable is an illustrative way of teaching to clarify truths for those in the kingdom and to conceal truths for those outside of the kingdom. In other words, parables are designed in such a way that those who are part of the kingdom of God will hear and say, oh, I see what he's saying but also for those outside of the kingdom to hear and say, huh? 
What do you mean? Now, of course, this doesn't mean that a person automatically gets a parable, right? It's not a if-you-know-you-know you know type situation, right? We see Jesus explaining and teaching his parables to his disciples. Hopefully, we'll be taught today. But there's certainly a sense in which even after the explanation, those outside of the kingdom will still be unable to perceive and understand this mystery. So what we find here is a parable. It is symbolic. It points to a spiritual meaning. A parable has a power to clarify or conceal. And like all of Jesus' teaching, it ought to evoke a sort of response to what he has said. That will be our outline for today then. If you look over there in your outlines, three points, the meaning, uh, the truths, and the response. And as we work our way through our passage, what I hope becomes clear to us is that the way God works moves us towards patient productivity. The way that God works moves us towards patient productivity. Let's go into detail, shall we? Point one, the meaning. Uh, This was read out to us earlier, and I hope you'll notice that there are four categories of seeds in a parable. Four categories of seeds. The first one is introduced in verses three to four. We're told a farmer goes out to sow his seed, Some fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. We can call this group category A, no growth. The second category of seeds can be found in verses 5 to 6. We're told that some fall on rocky places, they spring up, but then they die because they have no root. This is category B, the shallow growth group. The third category is found in verse 7. It says, some seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plant, so that they did not bear grain. We can call this category C, the some growth, right? So no growth, shallow growth, some growth. Now, the fourth and final category is found in verse 8, which says that the seed fell on good soil and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, and 100 times. We can call this category D, the miraculous growth group. To give you an idea, apparently over the past 30 years, the S&P 500 index has delivered a compound average annual growth rate of 10.7% per year. Some say, right, it's hard to beat index fund, right? So invest in that. That's not financial advice. That's what they say, right? But here we're seeing 30, 60, 100 times return. That's to give us a bit of perspective on how insanely miraculous this is. This points to a particular supernatural source. And I hope you see this is not just random numbers pull out of thin air. There's a purpose to it. We'll see this in just a moment, right? But you see, here's the thing. The moment we pay closer attention, we notice that the growth in our passage is not tied up so much with the seeds, but with the soil. In other words, the parable is not just about the seeds. Because you see, if you pay close attention, what causes category A to have no growth is that it fell among the path. There was no soil for the seed to land on. It was laid bare. It was vulnerable to the elements. And so we're told the birds came to eat it up. Makes sense. What causes category B to have only some shallow growth is that it fell on rocky places, again, where it did not have much soil. There was no depth for the roots to grow in. The sun withered it up. What causes category C to have some growth is that it fell on some soil. Look at the verse. But it had thorns. So it grew. But it quickly became entangled and likewise died. What causes category D to have miraculous growth is that it fell on good soil. 
So when we pay close attention, we notice that what actually matters is not just the seed that is sown, but the soil upon which it was sown. And this makes sense for us, doesn't it? We don't expect seed to grow on pavements. We don't expect our plants to grow among thorns or shallow soil. It's so obvious. We may be tempted to ask the question, so what? Well, before we consider the so what, I want to invite you to turn to verses 13 to 20 with me. Verses 13 to 20, because here we'll discover that this is not a lesson on agriculture. You haven't come to TAFE for an agricultural course. It's not just about the seed. And you know what? It's not even just about the soil. It is fundamentally about Scripture, the Word of God. Because verses 13 to 20 tell us its meaning. Verse 14 says, the seed represents the Word of God. That's what is sown. And so the reason why there is no growth in category A is that Satan comes to take away that which is sown. It continues by explaining the reason why there is shallow growth in category B is that the word is sown, but the troubles of this world rob the hearers of their joy. Verses 18 and 19 tell us the reason why there is some growth in category C is that they hear the roots grow, but they are distracted and the seed ultimately decays. And lastly, he tells us the reason why there is miraculous growth in category D is that the word of God is sown on good soil. Do you notice something, church? In category D, there is virtually no explanation after this. Look at your Bibles. All it says is that it is good soil. It doesn't tell us why else it grows. You see, in category A, B, and C, we are told it's explained why there is no growth. It's Satan. It's persecution. It's the worries of this world. That's why there's no growth. But category D, not so much. It just says good soil. Church, this is when we realize that this entire parable is not just about the seed. It's not just about the soil. It's not even just about Scripture, the Word of God. There is more. As you come to point two with me, what we'll discover is at least three truths based on this parable. Firstly, what we see in these 20 verses is that God's Word produces different responses in different people's lives. God's Word produces different responses in different people's lives. I want you to notice something, right? Notice it's the same farmer who farms the same seed. The same farmer sows the same scripture. What's more, the farmer doesn't go out on four separate occasions. He goes out once, he scatters, and it lands in different places. But the outcomes are radically different. It all depends on the soil. If we are able to perceive this parable, we realize that the soil represents the heart of the hearers. That's what the soil symbolizes, the heart of the person hearing and perceiving and responding to the word of God. Different people respond differently. Now, I'm not sure about you, but this nuance is so helpful, isn't it? Because we can sometimes have a very mechanical input-output mentality when it comes to spiritual growth. We assume that if a person has a certain amount of Bible in their head, then spiritual maturity and spiritual flourishing will come automatically. We think input Bible, output growth. 
Now, what are the implications of this sort of attitude? Well, when it comes to evangelism or sharing the gospel, we may be tempted to think, man, if I could just get some Bible into them, just, just, just got to get it in there, right? God's word, that's what they need. It's got to get it in there. And what this approach fails to take into consideration is who the person is, what their reservations or objections to the gospel are, how their hearts are blinded by sin, or whether they are being presented with the gospel in a tactful or persuasive way. It's too simplistic, isn't it, to just say, we just got to get the Bible in there. Or when it comes to discipleship or Christian maturity, we may be tempted to think, oh, what I need more of is just more Bible. If I can just get more Bible into my head or more Bible into your head, then we can all grow. Now, church, of course, we know that God's word is the only spiritual sustenance, only spiritual nourishment. God's word, the Holy Scripture, is our food, right? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted, the Lord is good. We are absolutely affirming the necessity of God's word for our soul and our lives. Yet at the same time, the parable of the sower also tells us that the seed of God's word produces different responses. There are other things to take into consideration. There is prayer. There is the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a community that forms us. There is a preparedness of our hearts depending on the season that we find ourselves in. There are so many other factors this parable here does not diminish the significance of the Word of God. If anything, it shows us it's the key ingredient, right? No word, no growth. But this parable resists the simplistic categories that we are used to. It shows us that people can respond to God's Word very differently. Now, for example, category A, those with no growth, are those who listen with hardened hearts. They are those listening, but they have predetermined in their hearts and their minds that they will not accept what they've heard. Perhaps that's why the parable describes them as seeds sown among a path that is dry and hard. If you look at verse 15 with me, it says, As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. If you have your own Bibles, underline that phrase, as soon as they hear it. There is an immediacy to it. There isn't even a willingness to consider or digest what they've heard. And in verse 15, Satan, the evil one, is attributed um, to the reason for this sort of ineffective hearing. Uh, these are people um, who have believed in the lies of Satan, the lies of our culture, and have hardened their hearts. Uh, that's why the church has historically believed, even up to today, that Satan's chief work is to distort and to destroy to distort the truth and destroy the church. So what we see here is that the same word is sown, but it is heard with hardened hearts and produces different responses. Category B, those with shallow growth are those who listen with a fragile faith. They are those who listen, but they receive it with joy. They love what they're hearing, but the pressure of persecution and the trials of temptations put their faith to the test so that the genuine quality of their faith is truly shown. You see, church, 
People say that true Christians are seen in times of trouble. They say true Christians are seen in times of troubles. And when you think about it, it makes sense, right? We can all agree it's easy to believe in Jesus when life is going well, when your bellies are full, when your relationships are flourishing, when your jobs are stable. But how do you know that Jesus is all that you could ever want and need? When Jesus is all that you have. When you have a deep sense that the Lord is the one who gives and the Lord is the one who gives away. When you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's love for you doesn't change in seasons of plenty or in seasons of want. Again, church, same seed is sown. I want you to notice this. But see the different responses. For category D, some growth. These are those who listen, but their hearts are easily distracted by the world. Verses 18 to 19 tell us they also hear the word, but the worries of life. The deceitfulness of wealth, the desires of other things, choke out or distract them from the truth. Worldly pursuits have captured their hearts. Now, as a side note, I think we can all agree that the worries of this life are hard to ignore, right? Let's be honest, who doesn't worry about work, relationships, schooling, children, retirement, food, money? We all do. It feels inescapable. It kind of feels like a checkmate move, right? But you see, according to the Bible, Christians are not powerless about their worries. So it's not whether we worry. It's what we do with our worries. God tells us that we can allow our worries to eat up our souls or we can commit them to God by faith. Matthew 6 verses 26-34 is a classic passage regarding the worries of this life. The Bible acknowledges real worries, like what we will wear, what we will eat, what we will drink. But the Bible doesn't say, forget these things. They're not important. The passage instead says, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. The Bible is saying, these things are important, but let's get our first priorities right. Let's firstly worry about God's kingdom. But church, one of life's greatest worries is money, isn't it? That's why there is a particular focus on wealth in this passage. Everyone worries about money. And if you don't worry about money, it's because someone is worrying about it for you. Uh, You know, when students say to me, Oh, Pastor Elliot, I don't worry about my money. I just spend what I want. And I think to myself, yeah. And your dad cries to me about it, right? (laughs) always say, my son and daughter, they don't care about money. All they do is spend, right? We often think of money as a dirty or negative thing. That's actually not how the Bible portrays it. Uh, We don't have time to uh, dive deep into this, but for our passage, I want you to at least notice that it is not the wealth that distracts. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. The problem is not wealth per se, but the attitude and mentality that wealth can bring. Apparently, and you probably know this to be true, affluence and wealth can deceive us into self-sufficiency and cause us to believe the lie that we no longer need God. Now, of course, it doesn't always have to be this way, right? We actually know of many wealthy people in the Bible who love the Lord, 
What's more, throughout the history of the church, we see wealthy Christians being profoundly generous so that churches are built, pastors are trained, missionaries are sent, and the gospel goes to the nations and generations. Nevertheless, Scripture is clear that there is something deceptive and enticing about wealth that can create an attitude of independence and pride. So once more, it's the same word that is sown, but when it's heard by those who are easily distracted by the world, they hear it, but they forget it, and they become unfruitful. And it's no surprise, right? The message of the Christian faith is not a message that is easy to swallow, The message of Jesus is not a nice upgrade to your already impressive life. It is a recognition of our sin as we gather together in worship today. It's a recognition of our dependence on God, our need to trust in Him. It's a recognition that we are worse than we can ever imagine, but more love than we can hope for. This is not easy to swallow. So you know what categories A, B, and C? We get it. It makes sense. But in category D, those with miraculous growth, they are those who listen and accept it. That's the key word. Underline that in your Bibles. They accept it. They embrace it as truth. They love it as beautiful. They recognize it as good. They make it part of their lives, and therefore it produces exponential growth. You see, a normal harvest will produce 10 times the amount that is sown. That's a normal harvest, and that's good. So for there to be 30 times the growth would have been a really good year already. What about 60? Now what about 100? 100 times. This extraordinary size shows us the powerful impact that God's word has on a person's life when they receive it with joy. But what's more, it also tells us how supernatural this is. It's not natural. The miraculous harvest tells us that there is a miraculous source. Given this miraculous harvest, the second truth this parable teaches us is that growth cannot be manufactured. Growth cannot be forced. Only God can bring this sort of growth. Now, within the context of Mark chapter 4, we know that the parable of the sower is actually about the kingdom of God. It is about Jesus establishing his rule and reign over his entire creation. It begins in Mark chapter 1, right? Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And this kingdom is one that goes on to today and will climax at Jesus' return. But if we look beyond the first 20 verses in chapter 4, I want you to leave your Bibles open and then turn to verses 26 to 29 with me. Mark chapter 4, 26 to 29. It says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. And and so the explanation goes. Uh, This wasn't read out to us earlier, but there's the same imagery of scattering seeds. But it says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. To make it abundantly clear, verses 30 to 32. 
Verses 30 to 32 reinforces this, right? Verse 30 says, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Again, the language of seed, the language of parable, the language of sowing shows us that it's connected to the first parable in Mark chapter 4. So the entire chapter is designed to show us that God's kingdom grows in unexpected ways. But here's one more piece of the puzzle. Church, let me ask you, what makes a person's heart prepared for the word of God? What makes a person's heart prepared for the word of God? In other words, what makes a patch of soil good soil? It's the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us these are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. The Spirit of God needs to work in the lives of an individual to awaken and soften their hearts so that when the Word is planted, it begins to bear the sort of fruit and harvest that Mark chapter 4 speaks about. And it's a popular saying that I think captures this idea. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration comes before faith. The Holy Spirit of God has to regenerate our hearts and soften our minds so that it's prepared to hear and to trust. Don't you see, church, from the beginning to the end, God is the one who brings the growth. The seed that is sown is the Word of God. The cause for its growth is the Spirit of God. So friends, an implication of this is that growth cannot be manufactured. We as humans cannot force it. We can't force spiritual growth in our lives. We cannot manufacture growth in God's kingdom. That's why this agricultural imagery is so helpful, isn't it? Like when you plant something in the ground, there is literally nothing you can do to force its growth. It's slow work. That's why I hate planting things. Right? I just have no patience, right? You see, you can add fertilizer to help its growth, okay? But do you think that adding more will make it grow faster? You can't force it. You can water your plant, but do you think by giving it more water, it will accelerate its growth? You will kill the plant, don't you see? Growth is totally dependent upon God. That's why the third helpful truth we see from this parable is that growth often requires patience. Growth often requires patience. Maybe that's why we find it hard. We don't have control over it. Because you see, as humans, we often want to manufacture growth, don't we? We want a sense of control over the sort of growth that we're after. Even if it's over our spiritual lives. Even if it's over the growth of the church and the gospel. What's more, we want to manufacture growth, but we also want instant growth. We want this because we want to feel like we're making progress. Like we're doing something. And maybe we're doing this because we feel like our value is so tied up with the growth that we see. Maybe we think that people will think more of us if they see my growth due to my efforts. 
I know that as a pastor, it is so hard to separate the growth of one's ministry from your own personal sense of progress and accomplishment. And maybe that's why as a Christian, you tend to beat yourself up over the lack of spiritual growth. You think it reflects something of your character or your value. Isn't that why sometimes we are often pushed to either pride or despair? Pride when things are going well. Like, man, I can boast when I'm growing spiritually because of my efforts. When we think, you are so immature. If you just try harder like me, you become more mature like me. I am quoting this verbatim from someone that I've heard. If you just try, just be more like me, then you'll be more mature like me. Wow. Pride. Or or maybe despair when things don't go well. The sense that, my goodness, I've done everything that I can, but why am I still the same? Why is it like this? There's no change at all. Why isn't God working? You see, church, I, I hope this parable shows us how God works. This growth requires patience. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7 is so helpful, and there's a passage to memorize this week. This might be it. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. This verse builds on the agricultural metaphor or the parable, and it speaks of our responsibility in growth, right? It's one of planting and watering, but it also tells us the realm where we have no control. It says only God makes things grow. Church, do you see how this is radically good news for us? That we are not in charge of the growth? That God in His kindness says, that's beyond your realm of responsibility. That's above your pay grade. Your identity or sense of value is not connected to how much you grow or how your ministries grow. God is in charge of that. And as we consider God's economy, how, God's, how God works, isn't that just totally consistent throughout redemptive history? God is the one who is absolutely responsible for creating the entire universe, start from finish, all God. God is the one who is absolutely sovereign over our salvation, start from finish, all God. God is the one who is absolutely in control over growth, start from finish, all God. He receives all the glory. And so given that this is God's agenda, church, we can be patient. You see, waiting time is not always wasting time. Waiting time is not always wasting time. We can feel like that sometimes, don't we? Since Anastasia's birth, Sherilyn and I have spent a lot of time in the waiting room of hospitals. And those hours, man, it can feel like such wasted time. But it's not, right? We're not waiting for nothing. The doctors and nurses are at work. They're doing something. But God is at work. He's at work in those waiting rooms. He's at work in those we are waiting for. He's at work in us who are waiting. I want you to notice something in verse 8 and verse 20, okay? The seed is sown on good soil, but do you notice when it produces the miraculous growth? Find it with me. When does this growth 
happen? It doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that it grows. It doesn't tell us when. Church, growth requires patience. What's our response? Let's put it all together, shall we? What does it mean for us? Well, since this passage is first and foremost about growth of God's kingdom, then the first implication has to be a call to engage in patient productivity in the growth of God's church. Patient productivity in the growth of God's kingdom. You see, failing to understand patient productivity can lead us to inactivity or frantic busyness. Inactivity or frantic busyness. We may be tempted towards inactivity, doing nothing, because we feel like we're doing lots, but but nothing's happening anyway, right? So why try? Grace point, I have seen many churches fall into this trap, and I pray that we would not join them. They risk becoming passive, lazy, and complacent because they've given up. They fail to realize the way God works. They say they're patient, but they do not persevere in productivity. They do not recognize their role in sowing and watering. They forgot that growth is not up to them. Or we may be tempted towards frantic busyness. We can feel like everything rests on our shoulder. We need to do everything. And I'm going to be the first to admit that this frantic busyness is my default disposition. People like me risk becoming overworked, burdened, and exhausted. We say we trust in God's sovereignty, but we work as if God doesn't know what he's doing. We work as if God needs our help to manufacture growth. Church, right in between is the space called patient productivity. Recognizing that every Christian is called to serve. There are no passengers on this train. Right? Everyone is involved. Every Christian is given a purpose to show Christ to be our greatest treasure. And in doing so, to see many added to our number as the world comes to know the saving work of Jesus. Therefore, patient productivity is by God's grace resisting the urge to give up when things are not going in the direction that we want. It's also resisting the frantic busyness that a performance-driven world like ours is drawn to. It is to say, God is at work so we can trust in Him, while also saying, God is at work so we can work. Church, let's keep encouraging each other in this as we look forward to the new year. In your ministry teams, keep challenging one another towards patient productivity. Ask yourselves, are we prone towards inactivity or frantic busyness? What does patient inactivity look like in this team? And the second implication is patient productivity with God's people in, in the growth of those around you. Church, I want to say that so many of you invest in each other's lives. You meet up one-on-one or in groups of three to disciple one another in the Word. You do this in your community groups. You, you do this with your children. You do this formally. You do this informally. We know that Christian service is not just about doing tasks. It's about investing in lives. And if you're like me, you can sometimes invest and wonder if it's, it's paying dividends. We may ask, are people even growing? 
And sometimes in the midst of not seeing progress, we may choose to tap out earlier than expected. Church, I want to encourage you to keep being patiently productive. Have you given up on praying and reading the Bible with your kids because they just seem disinterested? We already know that a word of God can produce different responses, but I also want to encourage you to not give up too prematurely. Like if you are on the edge of giving up, or if you've already given up, church, they're never too young or too old. Patient productivity. Growth takes time. God is at work. Have you been mentoring someone for a while and they just don't seem to be making any progress? It doesn't mean that you can never call it quits, right? And, and, and maybe he or she may be more responsive to someone else. Nevertheless, this is an encouragement to keep sowing because perhaps the time of harvest is not yet. And let me tell you something, right? If you are journeying with someone or mentoring someone and you see a harvest, you see growth, it's probably not you. It's probably the person before you or the one before you who's invested. I love it when youth leaders tell me, you know, oh, Elliot, this, this person became a Christian in my youth group. It's so fantastic, you know, like all my years of, of, of discipleship is paying off. And I say, good on you. But it's nothing compared to the 18 years of work that their parents have done. And so the parents can be like, I've done 18 years of work, nothing has happened, but this youth leader comes out of nowhere and whoosh, bang, it's amazing, right? Don't you see, we're all working together and God brings that growth at a particular time. Don't give up. We can expect imperfect people to grow in imperfect ways. I mean, isn't that our story? Was your faith in the Lord Jesus linear? Did it just, just work like that, right? Like you hear the gospel, you respond with great joy, and it's been an upward climb since then. Has that been? Probably not. There were seasons of dips and seasons of highs, but it's the same word of God that sustained and grew you. Church, be patient with one another. Expect imperfect responses from people, but expect growth from God. And so lastly, I want to encourage you to be patiently productive in your personal growth. Your personal growth. This is so important to emphasize. Because can I be honest, it, it's not hard for Christians to believe or to functionally believe that they no longer need to grow. I'll say it again. It's not hard for Christians to functionally believe that they no longer need to grow. And I say functionally because I don't think that any Christian would say, I've already arrived. I'm a fully formed Christian. No regenerate Christian would say that. But, but can we be honest? Sometimes we can feel that way. We stop saturating ourselves in Scripture. We stop putting sin to death. We stop soaking ourselves in deep Christian fellowship. We stop depending on God in prayer. We stop sinking deep in service. And we do this because we think, I've been doing it for all these years and it just feels the same. Why keep persisting? Dear brothers and sisters, our passage today challenges us, doesn't it? God brings the growth. He does it through His Word, but it requires steady 
and patient persistence. If I asked you what you ate last Monday, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me. If I asked you what you ate last Tuesday, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me. But just because you don't remember doesn't mean it's not significant. Without those meals that you don't remember, you wouldn't be where you are right now. Don't you see, even physical growth takes time. Steady, patient, persistence, productivity. Church, I want to encourage you. Charles Spurgeon once says, Patience, patience, you are always in a hurry, but God is not. Such a simple quote that we need to remember. In a world of instant noodles, instant coffee, even instant mashed potatoes, (laughs) we've begun to expect instant spiritual growth, both in our lives and the lives of those around us. But church, God is not in the business of instant growth. But when things do grow, they look absolutely magnificent. Here's a point to ponder for you this week. What areas of my life am I most likely to manufacture growth rather than trust God with the outcome? What areas of my life am I most likely to manufacture growth rather than trust God with the outcome? I've given you examples of three areas. There might be more. This is an opportunity for us to entrust this to God and renew our commitment towards patient productivity. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us and we thank you for the parable of the sower. Uh, that provides us a paradigm shift for us to realize that we cannot manufacture growth. You are in the business of it. And so, Lord, by your grace, we ask that you would continue to move us towards patient productivity as a church gathered, but also as a church scattered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.